This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages William McRae presented answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Now, here is William McRae on Today in the Word Radio. There are some things about God that are very, very difficult to understand. There are some things about God's activities that are really beyond understanding, aren't there? We have on our board of governors at Ontario Bible College and Theological Seminary a very, very fine businessman. He's uh, the president and owner of one of the largest companies in Canada. And uh, just before Christmas, he arrived at his 65th birthday and his day of retirement. He and his wife were looking forward to it, and there had been all kinds of talk about his retirement. And uh, on that Friday, I just made a point that I was going to phone him and, uh, and congratulate him on the occasion of his retirement. The very day he retired, he took a heart attack and was laid down and aside, and the rest of their life is affected by it. There are some things that God does that are very difficult to understand, aren't there? I have a friend who has served God for many, many years over in North and South Carolina. A great man of God, a faithful servant of the Lord. Raised a family, lovely family. Saw their oldest boy commit his life to the Lord and decide that he was going to commit his life to missionary service. Went to college, trained got on a plane, headed over to the mission field, disembarked, and en route from the airport to the mission station, he was killed in an accident. And when you think of the need in the mission field and you think of the dedication of this young man, that's very difficult to understand, isn't it? There are some things that God does that are very, very difficult to appreciate. 
few years ago, we received a phone call late at night. One of the young ladies that Marilyn and I had befriended and had been ministering to, who had all kinds of problems. She had problems with her parents. She had physical problems. She had all kinds of problems. Got the phone call from the hospital. Late that night, she had been um, attacked by a man in a garage. And here she was in the, in the hospital. And when I went to the hospital and uh, put my arms around her and held her for a little while as she wept and cried and went through all of the ordeal, I, I, I found myself saying to myself again, there are sure some things that are very, very difficult to understand and explain. And we shake our heads, say, I, I just can't understand that. Why does God allow that? Why does God do that kind of thing? Why does God cause those kinds of things? Why does God allow those kinds of things? Whatever the kinds of questions are that pop into our minds. Now, it's those kinds of circumstances that make it very difficult for a Christian to accept that God is a wise God. And that's the characteristic of God that we want to study together this morning. We want to reflect upon the wisdom of God and see if somehow we can put it into a perspective that will help us as we deal with some of the issues of life. The place, of course, to begin is with the word of God and with the clear declarations in the word of God that God is, in fact, a wise God. So let me invite you to turn to the book of Daniel, first of all, and we're going to look at three different passages of Scripture just briefly in order to, uh, to be sure in our minds that we uh, understand that this is, in fact, one of the attributes of God. He is a wise God. Daniel chapter 2. The first part of the chapter contains, of course, the marvelous story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He couldn't remember it called in all of his wise men, asked them not only to interpret the dream, but first of all to tell him the dream that he had. None of the wise men in Babylon were able to do so. He was about to commit each of them to execution. And finally the word came to him that one of his wise men had not been called in, a man by the name of Daniel. And so Daniel is called in. He's told the situation. Daniel asks for a period of time to pray to his God. Daniel pours out the situation before God, and God gives him the dream, as well as the interpretation of the dream. Now notice how Daniel responds. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. That's a marvelous affirmation from Daniel. His experience caused him to conclude that his God was not only a God of incredible power, power belongs to him. But also he was a God of great wisdom. Wisdom belongs to him. That's the testimony of Daniel. Now let's slip over in our Bibles to the book of uh, Romans and uh, two passages. First of all, Romans chapter 11. 
You will recall that in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has been giving us a theological presentation of God's plan of salvation. He begins with condemnation and comes to justification and then deals with sanctification and then comes to glorification. And in chapters 9 to 11, explains how it all works together, relating Jews and Gentiles in God's marvelous plan of salvation. Now, after Paul has has plumbed some of the depths and as he's explored some of the dimensions of God's plan of salvation, he comes with his benediction, verse 33, Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul's testimony as he reflects upon the the salvation of God and his marvelous plan of salvation, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now over to the last chapter of Romans, chapter 16. And as Paul comes right to the end of his marvelous epistle, one of the great um, mountain top experiences in revelation and in the experience of a believer, he comes with his benediction. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifested And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. What a marvelous declaration of scripture. Says Daniel, wisdom and power belong to him. Says the apostle, oh, the depth both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Says Paul, to the only wise God. I think that of all the attributes of God, the one that is most intriguing to me is his wisdom. And that's simply because there's so much that God does and so much that God allows in this world that, frankly, friends, confuses me and perplexes me. It leaves me without any explanation or any answer. And yet the Bible declares that he is the only wise God. I find it the most most fascinating. I find it the most intriguing I find it the most challenging attribute of God. He is a wise God. Now what we need to do first of all this morning then is see if we can understand what we mean by that when we say that he is a wise God. 
And there are several ways of approaching it, but let me give you a very simple one that I think is the most helpful handle to get on it. When we talk about the wisdom of God, what we are talking about is God's knowledge being applied in order to attain the best possible goals by the best possible means for the best possible reasons. That's the wisdom of God. Now, let me take you through those stages and just help you uh, digest it just for a moment or two. The wisdom of God is the application of his knowledge. Well, we understand that. There's a great difference between being knowledgeable and being wise. Uh, Sometimes they go together, but not always. You can have people who are very knowledgeable who are not very wise. And sometimes you can have people who are very, very wise and not particularly knowledgeable. Knowledge comes through study. It's, it's theoretical. Wisdom is intuitive insight into life. And it's practical. Oftentimes, wisdom is built upon knowledge, and it's the application of knowledge. And that certainly is true with God. God is absolutely perfect in his knowledge, and he is absolutely perfect in his wisdom. His wisdom is the application of his knowledge. He applies his knowledge. Now, what does he apply his knowledge to? First of all, it's to attain the best possible goals. When God sets his wisdom in action, he sets out certain goals. And if God is wise, then the goals that God determines are the best possible goals. You understand that? For example, one of the goals that God has determined for you is that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That was one of the goals he determined. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, before time ever began, he predestinated you to be conformed to the image of his son. One of the goals that he determined then was to make you like Jesus Christ in your morality to make you ethically and morally like Christ. That's a goal that he has determined. Now, what we're saying, friend, is this. Because he is a wise God, the goal that he's determined is the best possible goal. You see, if there's a goal that God could have set for you that's better than that, then God isn't a wise God. His wisdom dictates that the goal that he determines is the best possible goal. There could not possibly be a better goal that God could have ordained for you than the goal that he has ordained. If there's a better one, then God is not wise. Because he is a wise God, the goal that he has determined for you is the best possible goal. Now, we can move that in a hundred different directions. We can talk about the goal of the church. We can talk about the goal of this universe. We can talk, for example, about God's goal for your life today, about God's ultimate purpose for your life today. And what we're simply saying is that when God applies his knowledge to determine a goal, the goal that he determines is the best possible goal. It couldn't be improved upon. It couldn't be better. And that's because he's a wise God. 
He applies his knowledge then to attain the best possible goal by the best possible means. He uses different means to achieve his goal. And if he's a wise God, he couldn't possibly choose better goal, better means than the means that he chooses. If there are better means to achieve that goal than the ones that God uses, then God is not very wise. But because he is absolute wisdom, the means that God chooses to use to achieve his goals are the best possible means. God's goal for you is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Because he is a wise God, the means that God is going to use to cultivate Christ-likeness in your life are the best possible means. It may involve a, a bankruptcy. It may involve a delinquent child. It may, involved, it may involve an unanswered prayer for 20 or 30 years. It may involve an automobile accident. It may involve a sickness. It may involve a premature, untimely death. It may involve a presidency. It may involve an incredibly successful business. It may involve a gold medal. What we're saying is that the means that God chooses to use to cultivate the likeness of Christ in you are the best possible means. There couldn't possibly be better means or else he's not a wise God. But if he's wise, the means that he's using today in your life right now, while it can hurt, while it can cause tears, while it can be painful, while it can have all kinds of different emotions, the means that God has determined to use in your life in order to make you more like Christ are the best possible means, or else he's not wise. Now the last element is, it's the application of his knowledge to attain the best possible goals by the best possible means for the best possible reasons. Why does God do what he does? Well, I don't always know. But if he's wise, he has the best possible reasons for what he does. He has no obligation to explain to me what he does. He has no obligation to ask my permission for what he's going to do. He has reasons for everything he causes. He has reasons for everything he allows. And his reasons could not be improved upon. Or else he's not wise. Okay? That's where we are. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about a God who is the only wise God who has absolute knowledge and uses that knowledge to attain the best possible goals by the best possible means for the best possible reasons. He is a wise God. Now, what I want to do this morning with you, after we've got our focus sharpened, what I want to do is I want to take you into two arenas of life where the wisdom of God is displayed. And it's displayed in the fashion that I've been trying to explain to you this morning. The first arena is what we will call the arena of salvation. 
And that's an appropriate arena for us to consider because two of our quotations have come from the epistle to the Romans where salvation is really the subject. And so it's safe for us to say that one of the, um, one of the most obvious arenas where the wisdom of God is displayed is in the designing and the planning of our salvation. So why don't we talk for just a few moments about our salvation. And as we talk about it, see if we can develop an appreciation for the fact that the way God has planned it could not possibly be improved upon because he is a wise God. Salvation begins with the incarnation of the Son of God. God the Son becoming man, taking on the form of a man, the body of a man. God dwelling amongst us in the body of a man. We call it the incarnation. And that's really the very first chapter of the unfolding drama of God's plan of salvation. And I submit to you this morning, friend, that that's a marvelous display of the wisdom of God. Because in the Savior that he provides, there is the divine nature and the human nature. And you couldn't improve upon that. The Savior that you and I needed was a Savior who was divine. He needed to be someone who could who could deal with the guilt and the problems of all of us. So he needed to be an infinite person. He needed to be someone who could, who could handle the guilt and the judgment and the punishment of all of us. So he needed to be an innocent person. Our Savior needed to be someone who was infinite and innocent. And that demands deity. That demands Godhood. He was God. But he was also man. As a savior, we needed someone who would die for us. He needed to be a human. We needed someone who would understand our plight. Someone to whom we could come to and say, he understands. He was one of us. He lived here. I can approach him. You see, the great need of a savior demanded that he be God and man. In one person. And that's exactly what Jesus is. The incarnation with the advent of God in the form of a man dwelling together in one personality is a marvelous display of the wisdom of God. Friend, there could not have been a better kind of Savior provided for us than a Savior who was the God-man. The wisdom of God is displayed in God's resolution of the most provoking, the most perplexing, and the most difficult question that has ever invaded our human experience and planet Earth. It's the question of how you can reconcile the justice of God with the mercy of God. How do you reconcile those two? The justice of God demands payment for a broken law. The mercy of God seeks to free people from that guilt 
and give to them blessings and goodnesses. Justice demands payment. Mercy seeks pardon. God is a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. Because of his justice, he demands payment. Because he's a God of mercy, he seeks pardon. How can you ever reconcile those two? Justice stands up and says, I demand that the guilty sinner be required to pay for the broken law and to pay the full penalty of the broken law. He deserves hell, eternal death, and eternal judgment. That is what justice demands. Mercy stands up and says, because of my love, because of my care, I want to forgive, I want to pardon, I want to cleanse, I want to draw him in. Wisdom stands up and says, I will satisfy both. How? By God becoming a man and going to the cross and bearing as our substitute the guilt of our sin. Accepting the punishment that was ours. Dying in our place. Satisfying the demands of a holy God against lawbreakers. If you like, he went to hell for me. He bore the judgment of my sin. He met the demands of God's justice. He met the demands of a broken law. He died for me. Because of that, he emerges as a savior who now with arms outstretched reaches out to us and says, now I can offer forgiveness. Now I can offer pardon. Now I can offer salvation. The wisdom of God designed a plan of salvation that fully satisfied and perfectly reconciled his justice and his mercy. The wisdom of God is seen in the condition for salvation. What is the condition? What must you do in order to be a child of God? Well, the Bible makes it very clear. What you must do in order to become a Christian is exercise faith. And in a simple step to simply reach out and say, Lord Jesus, come in. Lord Jesus, I trust you. Or perhaps in the most simplest terms of all, responding to the gift of forgiveness and salvation that's in Jesus, to simply say, thank you. Now that's an exercise of faith. And the Bible says that is the condition for salvation. I submit to you, friend, that that's the wisdom of God. When God made faith as a condition for salvation... It's a display of his wisdom because because it suits us perfectly. There's nothing else that we could have done in order to ever merit his salvation, in order to ever make atonement for all of the sin that we have done. There's nothing that we could do to earn it or merit it. And so when he made faith the condition of salvation, I say that's the wisdom of God. And when he made faith the condition of salvation, he did what suits God best. Because as a result of faith being the condition, who is it that gets all the glory and all the praise for our salvation? It's God. If any other condition, if any other terms for salvation had been built into the plan, then we would have got credit. We would have got glory. We would have been patting ourselves on the back. In heaven, we would have been able to say, you know what I did to get here? 
God has designed the plan of salvation with a condition of faith because it suits us perfectly. There's nothing else we could have done. And it suits him perfectly. He is the one who gets the glory for it. You see, what I'm saying is that in the marvelous plan of salvation, you have display after display of the wisdom of God. Take, for example, the circumstances in which men and women are saved. What a display of the wisdom of God that is. I would suspect if we had an opportunity for you to stand up and how you became a Christian, that every one of us would have a different story. Some of us were saved when we were kids, four and five years of age. Some of us when we were 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years of age. Some of us were saved through a television program, some through a radio program, some through a track, some through an evangelistic crusade, some through a friend who was witnessing. Some of us were saved when we were at the top of the rung and we had experienced all of the successes and all of the blessings in life. We climbed the ladder and got to the top and discovered the ladder wasn't leaning against anything and we needed something to lean against. Some of us became Christians when we were on the bottom rung of the ladder. Everything had fallen apart. There was nothing left. And we hit rock bottom. And the only place we could look is look up to God. I don't know what the, what the circumstances were in your salvation, but what I'm saying is this. Those circumstances display the wisdom of God. They couldn't possibly have been better. They suited you exactly. It was the wisdom of God in designing the circumstances for that salvation of yours. You see, and that's why Paul comes to the end of, the Rome, end of Romans and he says, wow, the more I think of God's salvation, the more I think of the way he's worked with Jews and Gentiles, the more impressed I am with the depths, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And when he comes right to the very end of the epistle, he says, you are really the only wise God. And every time you think of your salvation, friend, you want to think of it in terms of a display piece of the wisdom of God. The second arena that I want to talk about for just a few moments is the arena that comes from the Daniel passage. Daniel has, um, has had an experience with God. He was uh, on the verge of being executed. And... Um, asked for a stay in the execution, give me a little time. And he goes into this quiet prayer chamber and he starts to pray and God opens his eyes and he sees the dream and he sees the interpretation of it and his response is wisdom and power. They belong to you, God. The wisdom of God is displayed not only in the arena of our salvation, But the wisdom of God is displayed in the providences of our life. The circumstances of living. The providences of God, the involvement and the activity of God in our life. And um, that's a display of the wisdom of God. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand. Sometimes it's difficult for us to accept. But it is an arena in which God's wisdom is displayed. Why don't we take a little journey through the scriptures and through the the halls of church history for just a few minutes and remind ourselves that God's wisdom is evident in the providences of life. How would you have felt if you were in prison with Joseph? 
after having been falsely accused when you tried to do your level best in Potiphar's household. You've been falsely accused, you'd been thrown in prison, and more than that, you had been forgotten by some friends that you had served and tried to help. And two years passed by. And it looks as though you're just going to rot to death in that prison cell. Boy, it's a time like that that you start to say, where are you, God? I mean, what's going on here? I, I'm one of yours. Man, I've stood, I've stood true to you, Lord. Where, where are you? What's going on? Well, of course, you turn over the pages of Joseph's life and you come to the last chapter. And you discover that those circumstances were actually the making of a prime minister. And when you see the young man Joseph as the second most powerful man in the world, using his power not to get revenge with his brothers, using his power not to subjugate and humiliate the Egyptian overlords, but using his power constructively and progressively, using his power wisely. What you discover is that all of those circumstances in Joseph's life were God's way of preparing a man so that when God put him there, he'd be able to handle it. See, that's the wisdom of God, so evident in Joseph's life. How would you have felt if you had been Joseph down in the belly of that fish? Jonah, rather. It was Jonah down there, wasn't it? I just said that to see if you were awake, yes? That was Jonah that was down there. How would you have felt? Well, you may have said, well, I deserve it. You may have had some other reasoning. Very interesting that when you visit Nineveh and see the remarkable revival that takes place in Nineveh, you can see the wisdom of the providences of God. You see, the number one deity worshipped by the Ninevites was a fish. It was the fish. They worshiped the fish as their number one deity, sort of like Americans in the eagle. You don't worship the eagle. But they worshiped the fish. That was their god. And here was a man who had come out of a fish with a message, 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. That was the wise providence of God. He could have dealt with Jonah in a hundred different ways. The way he chose to deal with him was by having him cast overboard and a fish swallowing him. And after three days for him to come out of that fish and arrive in Nineveh. That's, That's the kind of God we have, friend. He is a wise God. How would you have felt if you were Paul in prison? After giving your life to preach the gospel, after having all kinds of persecutions and afflictions and problems, and here you are in prison in Rome, and it looks as though everything has gone wrong. How would you have felt if you were Paul? Well, of course, the marvelous thing about what God was doing in Paul's life was that he was answering the deepest prayer, request, and desire of his heart. Paul's yearning for years had been to go to Rome. And he'd never been able to manage it. And so one day God managed it. 
and sent him to Rome on an all-expenses-paid trip. I tell you, every mission board would be excited for that to happen to a missionary. He's captured, and the Romans take him to Rome. And when he comes to Rome, he, it is designed in such a way that he has access right into the household of Caesar. You see, you could be in the middle of that prison experience and become very despondent. You could consider suicide. You could sure say, God, I'm really ready to resign. Where are you, God? But in the midst of it all, God was doing a marvelous work. His plan could not have been better. It was a designed plan by a wise God. And when all the pieces are in place and you look at it from back here, you look back, you say, that's right. God really was wise. Sure didn't look like it. But now that I see the whole picture, the wisdom of God, what a marvelous display. Adrian was the Roman emperor at the turn of the first century. And he was the emperor that decreed that Christians ought to be brought to trial. And uh, if you had been a Christian living at the first of that century, then you would have gone home that night to your wife and to your children and said, can you believe what the emperor just decreed today? He decreed that our cases are not to be dealt with in these little local tribunals. They are to be brought before the court of Rome. Can you imagine what's going to happen? What a terrible day this is for the gospel. It proved to be the best day possible. Because by the... uh, Christians being brought to trial by the Roman courts, they were being delivered from the riotous tumults of the mobs in the local towns. And Roman law protected them because Roman law demanded evidence before they be found guilty and convicted, whereas what was happening in the local tribunals in the villages, it was a mob response in an anti-religious kind of movement. It was the wisdom of God when through that Roman emperor, the decree was Christians will be tried in Roman courts. It protected them because it required evidence, solid evidence, before they could be convicted. You can go through church history, and what a marvelous experience it is. John Calvin is leaving France. He's on his way to Italy. And uh, there's a war taking place between uh, Italy and France. And as Calvin is going down, the road that he normally would have taken was closed because of the war. How do you feel when you come to a sign that says, uh, detour, road closed? Man, you can get so upset and so disturbed and so wrought up, can't you, over something like that? And that's what happened to Calvin. The road was closed, so he had to take a detour. It took him into Switzerland. It took him to Geneva. And at Geneva, he met Farrell, who was the one who persuaded Calvin to stay in Geneva and to lead the great Swiss Reformation and Calvin's ministry that has impacted the world for centuries is ultimately to be traced to that detour sign that led him off the road so he had to go through Switzerland into Geneva and into meet Pharaoh. That's the providence of God. And what we're simply saying, friend, is those providences... While so often they appear to be such confusion and such a mess, those providences are from the hand of a wise God. He applies all of his infinite wisdom 
to set the best possible goals and to use the best possible means and to do it for the very best possible reasons. That's the kind of a God we have. And that's what he's doing in your life and my life. That's what's happening in your life right now with your family, with your business, with your health, with your church. That's what's happening. Behind it all is the hand, the providential hand of a wise God. When I went to Bible college, Ontario Bible College, five years ago, we had a deficit of about a million dollars. And one of my challenges was to start addressing that deficit and try to do something about it. And uh, money and finances are one of the great burdens that um, people who are presidents of Bible colleges and seminaries have to live with every day. And it, it, was a, it was a terribly oppressive thing for me. We came close to the end of our fiscal year, which was May the 31st. And as we came close to the end of that year, we were very concerned because it looked as though we were going to actually increase our deficit instead of be able to decrease it. And we were going to end that first year in a deficit kind of situation. And um, I was very upset by that. Um, so upset that in the last couple of weeks of May, I, we have a president's cabinet, and I called the seven people who are part of the president's cabinet. We had an early morning prayer meeting in my office every morning. We said, Lord, you can provide these funds. You can touch these people. It can be, you, you can do this. May 31st, you can do this, Lord. May 31st came, and guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. I was so depressed, I couldn't even go to work that day. I stayed home and had a pity party. You ever have a pity party? That's when you put your thumb in your mouth and you just feel sorry for yourself. You say, God, where are you? What's happening here? I'm such a great guy, and here I am doing this for you. Lord, I mean, what's going on here? It was a terrible day. What a way to end my first year. Two weeks later, I stepped into the school early in the morning, past the office of the business administrator. He called out, Bill, you better come in. Went in and sat down. Went in. He said, you better sit down. And I sat down. And he handed me a check for $240,000. Now, I've never seen that in my life. It's never happened since, I want to assure you. <laughs> he showed me a check for $240,000. It was from one of our alumni and I uh, didn't know anything about her. We didn't know anything about her. Didn't even know that she had mentioned the school and the will. And then I asked, of course, the, 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 the leading question. When did she die? Two years ago. Where's the money been? Oh, the will's been in probate, and it's all been held up and so on, and, uh, and it just came through last night. Well, you know, now you're not so pious. You know the question that went through my mind, didn't you? Lord, you could have brought that in two weeks ago. <laughs> That's been sitting in a bank account for two years. Why didn't you bring that in two weeks ago? I mean, what a marvelous thing that would have been on May the 31st, wouldn't it? For us to be able to get a phone call and the administrator come in and say, hey, look at what's happened. And it would have handled our deficit and would have helped us with our accumulated deficit. What a marvelous way that would have been. That's the way I would have planned it. That's not the way God planned it. And I think I know why. No pride, no arrogance, nothing that I take to myself. If it had happened that way, I think I would have said, this is how I ended my first year. 
Boy, isn't that great? Look at what God did to us in response to our prayers. None of that. God simply said, I'm going to hold that money back for another couple of weeks. It's going to come. I'm going to look after you. But I'm going to hold it back for a couple of weeks. And I'm going to give it to you in my time. That's the providence of God, friend. And listen, it's the providence that comes from a God who is wise. He is the only wise God. And that's what he's doing in your life this morning. The poet put it this way. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot tell the colors. I cannot tell the colors. He weaveth, what's that next line? He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall he unveil the canvas and explain the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. The one who is weaving your life is the only wise God. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of all of our perplexities and all of our confusions this morning, we want to take hold of the fact that you are the only wise God. We know that when the end of the road comes, when when the weaving in its fullness is completed, when the pattern is all put together, then we're going to understand that you've applied your knowledge to achieve the very best possible goals in our lives and you used the best means and you've done it for the best reasons. Help us this morning to rest comfortably in the hand of yourself, our wise God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages by William McRae answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.